sickle. Bleeding saints and forest witches, the past unburied, the books unsealed, the old celebration returning. Hello, and welcome to my study. Uh, please come in and have a seat. All the uh, books surrounding you here are used to research our show, and the uh, individual to my right right here, along with uh, managing domestic duties, serves as our reader for any passages that will be directly quoted from um, all these sources. Her name is Mrs. Carswell. Hello. I suppose I should announce that we're adding an extra episode to our monthly offerings, a uh, shorter, somewhat streamlined show in which I'll read particularly interesting passages from some of the books around us. It's a thank you for our uh, $4 and up uh, supporters on Patreon. You'll kind of be doing my job then. Are you sure you don't want me to read or help in some way? Don't have to help, but I will need the uh, house quiet during recordings. You'll have to remember that while planning your routines. I can just sit quietly. Well, you needn't be so dramatic. I just mean maybe just put off anything noisy like running the laundry or clanking pots and pans. Or maybe I'll go to the park. I could sit there. I'm not sure what else I'd do. I guess I could bring a book or bird watch, but... I'm not sure I know enough about birds to bird watch. You're making things complicated. I just don't think I can bring myself to start reading up on birds. Also, if you bring a book somewhere, it can be an open door to all sorts of things. Men will use it as an icebreaker and start talking, and it could all get very unsavory. There's really no need to leave the house. I suppose feeding the birds is what's done. That's what old people do. Before they die, yes. That's what my father-in-law would do. I... I guess I'd forgotten. What? Oh, that I was married. Well, it was only twelve days. I suppose you'd be forgiven for forgetting. Uh, I'm sorry. I didn't know it was so short. It just didn't seem like something to talk about. Since I'm a widow. Yes. It's fine. It's not sad. He was a bad man. Very bad. Ah. His father wasn't, though. He was kind and always fed those birds. But he was old and confused. He mistook laundry detergent for birdseed. I don't think they were harmed. I'm sure they vomited it right up. Do you know that birds regurgitate food? Not vomiting, but regurgitating as part of their courtship. And I thought you didn't know about birds. Mother told me. It's done as a sort of gift. It's a loving thing, offering food, imitating the mother's love when she brings a baby's food in the nest. Regurgitated food. I had no idea. I guess I do know some things about birds. The important things. Mother is always good about zeroing in on what's important. Knowledge of both the birds and the bees. I wish you wouldn't make lewd jokes. Okay, uh, then uh, we are going to start. Episode 50, The Gin. (laughs) 
I am your host, Al Reidenauer, and this show, Bone and Sickle, explores the intertwining of horror and folklore in a historical context. I started the show as a way to further explore this area of intersection after writing my book, The Krampus and the Old Dark Christmas. Bone and Sickle only exists thanks to the generosity of our Patreon donors. As I've mentioned, we've uh, freshened up some of the rewards offered to our supporters, and I hope you'll stay around to hear about those at the end of the episode. From the world past hope and fear, I bid you, genie, now appear. The uh, cinematic bits opening our show are from the uh, trailer from uh, 1940s, The Thief of Baghdad, and the uh, 1958 Ray Harryhausen classic, The Seventh Voyage of Sinbad. And the music over which I am now speaking is Rimsky-Korsakov's 1888 symphonic suite, Scheherazade. Scheherazade is the new and uh, unfortunate wife of Shariar, an eastern ruler who, after discovering the infidelity of an earlier wife, has developed a nasty case of misogyny compelling him to marry a series of virgins, each of whom he executes after the wedding night. In order to forestall her fate, however, Scheherazade spends what should be her last night telling the despot a story. A uh, fantastic cliffhanger that puts his execution plans on hold, so you can hear more the next night. As you probably know, we're talking about 1001 Nights, or the collection sometimes called the Arabian Nights, a uh, primary Western source when it comes to our topic of uh, genies or the jinn. The narrative of Scheherazade herself serves as a framing device, often creating a frame-within-a-frame effect, as uh, characters in one tale often launch into another nested story. So uh, there are fewer than 1,000 stories, as many are uh, also broken up over several nights, and the tales aren't necessarily Arabian, as the collection also contains uh, Persian, Turkish, Indian, Greek, and Jewish tales. Oh, and uh, Scheherazade does survive the 1,001 nights. The uh, compilation is something that grew over the years with the earliest core tales from Persia and India translated into Arabic probably in the 8th century. And the first European edition was published in 12 volumes in the early 1700s by French scholar Antoine Gallon. And this was followed by the first printed collection in Arabic in 1775. The um, most familiar English version was produced by the scandal-ridden uh, world traveler and polyglot Richard Burton, not that one, uh, in the uh, 1880s. Those uh, scandals, mainly Burton's erotic fixations, are too involved to recount here, but will be detailed on the uh, Patreon blog. And of course, these uh, European publications were a major factor in the Orientalist movement discussed in our Victorian Mummies episode as well as an influence on Gothic writers in general. 
course, the uh, most familiar story from this collection, the one that's the uh, West's real cultural touchpoint when it comes to genies, is Aladdin. But that wasn't even part of the original Arabic collection. Like the tales of Sinbad and Alibaba, it was a much later inclusion. And it wasn't said anywhere Arabic. The text places this story in... One of the cities of China. And, I should mention, Aladdin isn't a foreign visitor. He's a Chinese native. But, to be fair, the language and cultural references to sultans and the dialogue replete with Muslim blessings gives just cause for uh, that sort of confusion. And there are also two genies in the original. The genie of the lamp, of course, and one enslaved to a ring, which is given to Aladdin by an evil magician as an aid in his task of retrieving that lamp from the cave. Oh, and there's no three wishes in the story either, nor any particular connection between three wishes and genies. There are, however, references to magicians granting three wishes in a few Sinbad tales, and the trope shows up in European stories even uh, before the Arabian Nights appears, at least as early as 1697 in a collection of literary fairy tales by Charles Perrault, in a story called The Three Ridiculous Wishes. Now, onto our main topic, the jinn themselves. Now, I've been using the word genie because that was the word familiar from the Arabian Nights. It was an English translation of the similar French word used there, which might have represented an attempt to equate the jinn with the Roman or Latin concept of the genius. Uh, that is a guardian spirit or inner nature. The Arabic word jinn, by the way, can be used for both singular and plural, so I'll be doing so. The word comes from uh, a root meaning hidden, and while they're considered part of the invisible realm between men and angels, they not only can appear in the mortal world, but are in many ways quite a bit like us. They are either male or female. They marry and engage erotically, sometimes with humans. Uh, they can have children, they eat food, and, and they're not immortal. In fact, under the right circumstances, a jinn can even be killed by a mere human. A clever one. Uh, they have social hierarchies, they have rulers and the ruled, and some say they can be grouped in 70,000 tribes. As uh, free-willed beings, they can also be either good or evil, or a mix of both. The uh, good jinn, of course, have accepted the prophet who said in the Quran to have uh, preached to them. Some jinn are even understood to be Christian, Jewish, or Zoroastrian, or follow the uh, pre-Islamic uh, animistic beliefs of their region. While jinn can always shapeshift and may manifest in uh, amorphous phenomena like mists and shadows and particularly in the uh, desert whirlwinds, they're usually portrayed as a humanoid with some animal features, particularly horns, and they're often rather gigantic in stature. Edward Westermark, a Finnish scholar who spent a great deal of time in Morocco researching books on ritual and religion there, uh, has this to say in his uh, 1899 article in the Journal of the Anthropological Institute of Great Britain and Ireland. Jinn appear now as men, and now as goats, cats, dogs, donkeys, tortoises, snakes, or other animals. 
now as monsters, with the body of a man and the legs of a donkey, now in shapes, sometimes, for instance, with seven heads. A man told me that once, in his youth, he met a little baby, which was suddenly changed into a giant. And? One evening, my servant saw a jinn in the offices attached to a mosque. The jinn was white, had long hair, and was scratching his head. Being quite frightened, he called the night watch, and the jinn then ran away in the shape of a red dog. Dogs seem a uh, popular form in which jinn present themselves, particularly black dogs. Other desert animals are also mentioned, including scorpions, owls, wolves, jackals, and lions, or hybrids of all those. Westermark continues, Serpents are the animals most associated with jinn. The jinn takes the forms of snakes and appear in front of humans. It is for this reason that the prophet has forbidden the killing of the snakes found in the houses out of fear that they may be jinn and have embraced Islam. Uh, the same caution is often generalized to other animals, to uh, killing uh, pests like scorpions, or to beating obstinate mules or other work or herd animals. Westermark goes on to say, There are also traces of veneration for household snakes in Morocco, where a snake is seen in a house is frequently taken for a good gin the guardian spirit of the house. I've even heard stories of snakes regarded as the spirits of houses, showing themselves once in three years on the rafters, and sometimes sucking the breasts of women and drinking milk out of the mouths of children. And uh, we'll have a few more descriptions from stories compiled by the uh, French orientalist Francois Delacroix. These are from his 1739 book, the Persian and Turkish tales. I saw with surprise twelve or fifteen black and meager jinn about me, who had sparkling saucer eyes. I observed that they were like men in the face, but some had a long horn in the middle of their foreheads, and dogs' tails, and others from the waist downwards were made like lizards. And in another tale, he offers uh, this odd description of a jinn who... Had a proboscis like that of an elephant. His right eye was redder than blood, and his left blue. Well, the home of the jinn is traditionally said to be Mount Kafku, the uh, sort of otherworldly Mount Olympus of Islamic mythology. There are uh, plenty of other, more earthly places that can be found, uh, certain hills, caves, uh, rivers and rocks and trees, and at crossroads, uh, amid ruins and abandoned houses or cemeteries, uh, in camel pens and in slaughterhouses, as they're said to be attracted by blood. But there are also stories attached to them to uh, less likely places, including mosques and marketplaces or hashish dens. Uh, well, maybe the last isn't so unlikely, I don't know. Uh, many stories portray them living underground, often guarding treasures, as in the, a number of Arabian Nights tales, like Aladdin. Just as there are seven heavens in Islamic lore, there are sometimes seven mythological subterranean levels to which the jinn are confined for crimes against God and his prophets, and we'll talk about some of those shortly. After twilight is the time of the jinn, 
and it's then their haunts are particularly to be avoided. Uh, the perils of spending the night in such a place are recounted in the Arabian Nights tale, Ali, the Kareen, and the haunted house in Baghdad. Though uh, it does depart from our Western haunted house trope in that uh, the resident jinn rewards Ali with uh, treasures during his stay. The presence of jinn makes any activities riskier at night. One should not look into a mirror at night as jinn may enter the eyes. Nor should one sweep a house as the broom may strike and injure a nocturnal jinn. Another Arabian night story, in fact, the tale of the traitor in the jinn depicts a vengeful jinn whose son was killed by someone carelessly tossing out a date pit. For similar reasons, in emptying a bucket, one is therefore advised to call out permission and uh, urination in undesignated outdoor spots can likewise therefore be uh, very problematic. Salt and iron, and by extension steel, uh, provide a means of keeping the gin at bay. Horseshoes are therefore nailed up above uh, doors of homes and stables as in the west, and an old sickle might be uh, placed in silos to protect grain or a knife under the pillow of a sick person, otherwise uh, more susceptible to gin attacks. A, uh, a tiny needle placed in the dress or skin of a gin can subdue it, can't touch it to remove it. And uh, the mere invocation of iron serves as protection against gin-ridden whirlwinds by the Arabs who would see them on the desert and call out, Iron! Iron! to frighten away the spirit. Moroccans traditionally would throw salt into a fire that might harbor a gin. Uh, sprinkle it under the bed of a woman who's given birth, on the ground where a tent is to be set up or in silos to protect the grain. And on the other hand, while bathing in the salt sea, one is automatically safe from gin. Oh, and meat ritually offered to the gin when uh, some favor is being sought has to be prepared without salt. Though uh, elsewhere, uh, in the Quran, in fact, it's said that the preferred food of gin would be bones or dung. While neither necessarily good or evil, in practice, jinn are more likely to be feared uh, for the uh, sickness and misfortune they can cause. However, others will uh, seek out their uh, helpful supernatural knowledge through uh, fortune tellers and magicians. And in literature, they uh, sometimes play the role of a muse to uh, poets. This uh, special knowledge the jinn has is said to be obtained by their eavesdropping on the angels from a position just outside heaven's lowest level they can't enter. And uh, shooting stars are explained in Islamic folklore as the angels pelting these spies to drive them away. The jinn can even fall in love with humans, and the Arabian Nights contains uh, more than a few references to uh, jinn-human marriages. Uh, Westermark also recounts uh, some more uh, recent rumors of the same that were told in the Moroccan village hosting him. A man married a jinn and lived with her in a mill. When they were alone, she had the appearance of a woman. But as soon as anybody else entered the mill, she assumed the shape of a frog. The people knew of her from her doings. One morning, her husband was found in his bed with his legs tied up. He had quarreled with his wife 
and she had taken her revenge in this way whilst he was asleep. As a rule, however, she was kind to him. He had always money, he was well-dressed, and possessed many guns. This was, after all, an unusually happy instance, for connections with Jin generally result in madness. Summoning the Jin can involve a protective ritual circle, as in the West. Uh, the uh, Prophet Muhammad himself provides an example of this in a particular hadith or legend in which the Prophet's companion, Abdul bin Masud, asks to see the jinn. He drew a circle with his foot for me and advised me to keep sitting within that circle. Seating Abdullah bin Masud within that circle, he advanced ahead and then stood at a place. There, he started recitation of the Holy Quran. All of a sudden, a big group of jinn encircled the Prophet. Muhammad demands of the jinn whether they have accepted him and his mission, requiring that they uh, provide a sign of this, and they oblige by moving a nearby tree from one place to another. And the uh, site of this today is said to be marked by the much-visited mosque of the jinn in Mecca. In terms of uh, types of jinn, the uh, ifrit and marid are often mentioned. The ifrit, or uh, afrita, are distinguished by their strength and cunning, and the marid by their uh, immense size. The genie of the lamp in the Aladdin story, for instance, is said to be a marid, though in the same story he's also called an ifrit, as is often the case with uh, folkloric beings. It's kind of futile to put too fine a point on it, all that can really be said is that these are two particularly fearsome species. Not necessarily evil, but always fearsome. Evil jinn are called uh, shayatin, or the singular shaitan. The word may either come from a root meaning to whisper, as these jinn are frequently portrayed whispering wicked ideas into human ears, but it's uh, more likely related to the uh, Hebrew word for adversary, of course, related to word Satan. There's a whole range of uh, evil mythological beings which may or may not be considered jinn, such as the ghoul, which I'm saving for a future episode, or the uh, Samun, an Arabic embodiment of the hot winds and fire. And um, associated with the lightning are the uh, female Salin, which are treacherous beings found uh, lurking around oases that can lead men astray into the uh, remote desert. Uh, she generally would have legs and mane of a horse, or she could appear as a greyhound, but also can appear in the guise of a beautiful woman playing the role of a sort of succubus. While jinn are mentioned around 30 times in the Quran and have dedicated to them their own surah or chapter al-jinn, their mythology was apparently adopted into Islam from an older polytheism practiced by the Arabs. It's believed they would have occupied a more godlike position in those days, uh, later being demoted to minor spirits by the uh, zealously monotheistic teachings of the new faith. There's even a hint of this in the Quran in a uh, passage scorning an Arab pagan for seeking help from the jinn rather than the one god. If you know anything about the jinn, you've probably heard they were, in the beginning, created from fire, or, as the phrase is most commonly translated, from smokeless fire. 
They inhabited the earth before man and were given holy commandments to follow and were even sent prophets, but the jinn rebelled against God. Uh, four different rebellions set thousands of years apart. In the fourth, an army of angels is dispatched by God and scatters them to the uh, remote places where they now hide. Central to all this is the Islamic version of Satan, Iblis, uh, whom some Islamic scholars regard as a fallen angel, but is perhaps more widely regarded as an elevated jinn. His uh, fall comes when God commands him to kneel before Adam. He refuses, complaining that as a being made of purer stuff, as fire rather than earth, and as one created before man, he should not kneel. A uh, seniority issue, more or less. As a jinn, Iblis is the uh, grandson of Jan, the sort of uh, Adam of the jinn. Iblis is captured during the war between the angels and the jinn and is taken to heaven. As an outstanding prisoner, he rises to the ranks and the angels adopt him as one of their own. And when the angels obey God's commandment to bow before Adam, Iblis refuses and is ejected from heaven to wander the earth till the day of judgment as the great tempter and enemy of mankind. Iblis has some very distinctive traits, seven hairs upon his chin and a blind eye which is explained by an odd hadith in which the uh, prophet Idris, or Enoch in uh, Judeo-Christian tradition, uh, who's a tailor, uh, suggests that Iblis looked through the eye of a needle, and as he bends close, the uh, prophet knocks the needle into his eye. So, as I mentioned, Iblis is not only the son of another jinn, but he gives birth to quite an assortment of children, seven kings of the jinn, according to one story. And according to another, his uh, progeny are the scorpions, snakes, the ghouls, and uh, mythical night birds, uh, perhaps owls. Uh, oddly, these offspring are born from 30 eggs that he lays. By the way, if you're interested in owning your very own gin egg, you can buy one from the eBay seller Salam Burda in Sofia, Bulgaria. His uh, listing shows a photo of a fossilized thing shaped like an egg, which he says was found in the roots of a particularly gnarled and hideous tree in a haunted Turkish forest. Only $699, or 24 monthly payments of $32 each using PayPal credit. A particularly famous master of the jinn is King Solomon, the uh, Old Testament king known for his wisdom and wealth. According to Islamic legend, Solomon's wisdom was imparted after the death of his father David, through the appearance of angels, first eight that governed the eight winds and birds, then four that governed the fish and the animals. The angels bring in these creatures who teach Solomon their language and secrets, and they continue to play significant roles in his uh, legendary wisdom, with the birds, along with the jinn, explicitly mentioned in the Quran as uh, members of Solomon's court and army. The angels also provide hidden knowledge of the various ailments afflicting mankind, uh, along with their cures, by introducing Solomon to the jinn causing them. A 10th century Arabic text known in English as the Catalogue describes, for instance, the king meeting a jinn by the name of Mamas. In the form of a man dignified with a goat's head and his hair like that of a woman. Suleiman, peace be upon him, said to him. What is your corruption? Where is your residence? Mama said. 
I reside in the shades of synagogues. My corruption is that if I seize a person, I choke him till his tongue drips with his saliva like a maiden horse. Mamas also provides the king with the remedy for the choking he causes, uh, something to do with sensing the patient with the smoke of Chinese rhubarb and some other things. Solomon's ongoing mastery over the jinn is facilitated by a ring given to him by these angels. In some versions, it's uh, four heavenly jewels set in the ring, but more commonly, it's a ring half of brass, half iron, occasionally inscribed with the uh, holy name of God, but more often with a magic symbol, which is either the pentagram or the uh, hexagram that later came to be known as the Star of David. This ring and the magical design itself are both known as the Seal of Solomon. Seal because the seal of a king's signet ring was a mark of authority used to imprint royal documents before handwritten signatures became common. In some stories, the iron side of the ring imprints his authority upon the evil jinn and the brass upon the good. The most famous task to which Solomon assigned the jinn is the building of the temple in Jerusalem, that is, the uh, first temple destroyed in uh, 587 AD. The oldest written version of the story, which serves as the basis for all later legends, is contained in the uh, Babylonian Talmud, written between the 3rd and uh, 6th century, so we'll look at that version. Um, uh, this uh, version uses the word demon, but these are jinn in Islamic retellings. The story begins with an odd requirement that iron tools cannot be used to hew the rocks from which the temple will be built. It's not uh, clear why, but iron would somehow profane those uh, stones. So, a uh, magical solution is suggested. It's the shamir with which Moses was said to have engraved the holy stones worn on the ceremonial breastplates of the priests. Now, the uh, translation of the word shamir is the subject of much debate. All the uh, Talmudic text makes clear is that it can miraculously cut stone, and that it is... The size of a barleycorn. Some have suggested uh, the shamir is a particular stone, but more interesting is the uh, common belief that it was a sort of worm uh, fantastically endowed with this ability to uh, cut stone. Anyway, to ascertain the location of this creature, Solomon calls up the jinn of his court, and while they don't know the Shamir's location, they suggest that the prince of the jinn dwelling in a faraway land might possess this worm. The Hebrew name of this demon is Ashmadai, which becomes Asmodeus in Christian demonology, and in Islamic tellings, it's usually uh, given as Sakr. So, an expedition is dispatched to the far-off home of Ashmadai or Sakr, where he is captured by filling a well from which he drinks with wine and chaining the demon when he becomes drunk. When uh, brought before the king, however, Ashmedai says he does not possess the Shamir, but that it can be obtained from the king of the sea, who lives on a far-off island, and that this king only allows a particular bird, the hoopoo bird, to use the Shamir to split rocks on the island's mountaintops. So, uh, another expedition is dispatched. Uh, finding the nest of this magical bird, Solomon's men seal it over with glass so that when the hoopoe returns, it will be compelled to produce the shamir in order to cut through the glass. Yes, it's, a, it's an odd story, but suffice it to say, the 
Shamir is obtained. As construction is to begin, Ashmedai, who is still detained in the palace, boasts of his strength and the ease with which a team of demons might complete this uh, project. And Solomon uh, takes to the idea. With his magic ring, Solomon imprints his authority on Ashmedai, and the enslaved demon is sent out with the ring to himself, do likewise with Beelzebub, who then enlists the help of all the other demons who quickly construct the temple. I guess finding the right tool can sometimes be the hardest part of a job. In some versions of these legends, Solomon handing off his ring does not go so smoothly. Uh, one legend has the king handing off his ring to one of his wives while he's at the bath, and uh, seeing an opportunity, the jinn Sakar or uh, Ashmedai, takes on the appearance of the king and asks for his ring back. With the ring's power, Sakar then throws the king out of his kingdom and again takes on the appearance of the ruler, sitting upon his throne for 40 days, while Solomon languishes in exile. Another uh, Talmudic tale has the inquisitive king asking Ashmedai for a demonstration of his strength. The demon warns Solomon that such a thing could be a cause for regret, which annoys the king, who insists he's never regretted a word he's uttered nor an action taken. And Ashmedai replies, If this be so, my lord, then hand me your ring. When Solomon playfully complies, however, Ashmedai rises up, catching Solomon in his claws and flinging him into a distant land. The ring he tosses into the sea. But thankfully, it's swallowed by a fish that's become the dinner of the exiled king. Cutting the fish open, Solomon replaces the ring on his finger and is empowered to return to Israel and reclaim his throne. Islamic legend provides Solomon with different forms of vengeance on this jinn. In one, he locks the jinn in an iron chest and casts him into the Red Sea. In another, he imprisons him on Mount Damavand in Iran, the uh, volcanic peak of uh, Asia's highest mountain. And in still others, he seals him in a rock or box of rock, which is said to explain Sakhar's name, which means... The Rocky One. Belief in the jinn and their power over mankind is still strong. A 2012 Pew Research Center survey found that in Morocco, at least 85% of the populace believed in jinn, 84% in Bangladesh, 63% in Turkey, 55% in Iran, and so on. And you can get a sense of the currency these uh, beliefs have and the questions that arise online. On the uh, site Quora, for instance, I just this week found these questions posed. What are jinn attracted to? How do you communicate with the jinn? Can you control a jinn? Is it possible to catch a jinn? How do you do so? Can a Muslim marry a jinn? How do you identify jinn among humans? What if a male jinn is in love with you? Is it offensive in Islam if a jinn is a father of a child? What are the symptoms of a jinn possession? The possibility of possession by jinn and protection against this are interests uh, well represented online, where you can find um, lots of sites with magicians selling protective ambulance, individuals suggesting appropriate prayers to repel the jinn, or specialists and even dedicated clinics of a sort offering jinn eviction, the word that's used here in place of uh, exorcism. 
You can also find countless videos of jinn possession on YouTube, which is what you're hearing. In the name of Allah. In the name of Allah. What are you? What are you? What are you? I said. What are you? I said, what are you? Animal? Animal? Animal. Okay. Why did you enter him? I'll post some of these on the Patreon pages. The symptoms of jinn possession need hardly be uh, this dramatic. Often they simply uh, cause some form of physical sickness or symptoms like depression. Uh, the uh, specialist in controlling and evicting jinn is called a raki, and the eviction is called a rukya. The Rocky will employ healing touch or laying on of hands in the Christian parlance. And they may also perform some sort of ritualized purification, making use of honey or water. But most important is a prolonged recitation of certain Quranic verses. <laughs> Stop! Stop! What's your name? Oh, Safina! Safina! Oh, what type oh, of gin is Ashraf? Oh, Morocco has the most interesting history when it comes to gin possession. Along with consultation with the various specialists uh, I've just mentioned, gin may there be expelled uh, through uh, pilgrimage to one of the many mausoleums of Sufi saints that dot the Moroccan landscape and there are several Sufi brotherhoods who practice a sort of uh, fighting fire with fire approach when it comes to this matter. Uh, holy men who enter ecstasies through music and dance, which cause them to be inhabited by good jinn, able to vanquish and drive out the bad. The first of two of these I'll discuss is the uh, Hamadsha, uh, a um, little studied group that uh, not only uses music and dance to invoke the jinn, but also engages, or perhaps engaged in the past, in frenzied self-mutilation. John Drummond Hay, an English envoy to the court of Morocco, describes a Hamadsha rite in his 1896 memoir, saying that during the rite he observed participants cut themselves with knives and hatchets, run swords into various parts of their persons, and generally mutilate themselves when under the excitement of their fanatical rites. A large iron ball is carried in their processions, and this is constantly thrown into the air and caught on the heads of the Hamadja as it falls. He further recalls, At one side of the courtyard, near a fountain, which sprouted from the wall, were placed several monster earthen jars. After jumping with his fellows for a short time, the participant cast his eye on these, and, springing aside, he seized one of them and pitched it into the air, catching as it fell on his shaven crown, where it was dashed to pieces. I don't believe such rites have persisted into the present, but I did find a summary of a 1982 interview uh, recorded with a member of the Hamadsha conducted by a professor from the University of Michigan. His 26-year-old uh, informant recalls encountering a Hamadsha rite at the age of 13, jeering at the scene with some neighborhood boys, and then suddenly collapsing. 
Um, this was followed by a three-month sickness, during which his mother called members of the sect to the home to treat him. During the treatment, he entered a trance and thereafter joined the Brotherhood, regularly cutting himself in their rituals and losing up to a liter and a half of blood on some occasions. Jin possession becomes even more terrifying in the case of our last Brotherhood, the Aisawa. Though such activities were suppressed in the last century, from the 1800s we have some quite remarkable reports of frenzied behavior. An observer of an Aisawa rite, writing for Edinburgh's uh, Blackwoods magazine in 1882, for instance, recalls a spectacle in which a participant seized a sword and began to lacerate his stomach. The blood flowed freely, and he imitated all the time the cries and movements of the camel. We soon had a wolf, a bear, a hyena, a jackal, a leopard, and a lion. A large bottle was broken up and eagerly devoured. Twenty different tortures were going on in twenty different parts of the hall. James Fraser, in his The Golden Bough, quotes an even more alarming account of an Isawa rite, one recorded in Alfred Lyrid's 1876 book, Morocco and the Moors. The Isawa moved through the town streets, Lyrid writes, Their long black hair, ordinarily worn in plates, tossed about by the rapid to and fro movements of the head, with faces and hands reeking with blood and uttering loud cries resembling the bleating of goats. The place is now at their mercy, and the people avoid them as much as possible by shutting themselves up in their houses. Goats are pushed out from the doors, and these the fanatics tear immediately to pieces with their hands, and then dispute over the morsels of bleeding flesh as though they were ravenous wolves instead of men. Snakes also are thrown to them as tests of their divine frenzy, and these share the fate of the goats. like an evil Aladdin's lamp. He's being possessed by some kind of a demon called a djinn. Oh man, I do not believe this. If the djinn grants three of my wishes, he has the power to open the gates of hell. That's bad, right? <sighs> yes, very bad. The uh, clip is from 2001's Wishmaster 3, the uh, bitter end or uh, final installment of a series of uh, horror films featuring a sort of a genie monster, the Wishmaster. Even the original 1997 film was called by the uh, San Francisco Examiner. An extravaganza of bad special effects and worse acting. Oh yes, please. 2013 gave us uh, veteran horror director Toby Hooper's final film called simply The Gin. Eddie was just telling us about the rich history of the region. You mean The Gin? Uh, produced with partners from the United Arab Emirates, it treated the topic a bit more seriously, but was poorly received. Since we're wrapping up the show here, I don't want to leave a bad taste in your mouths. There are some excellent films exploiting the uh, horror potential of the jinn, unsurprisingly those created by directors from the Islamic world. Here, I would suggest 2016's Under the Shadow, uh, from the Persian director Babak Anvari. Set during the Iranian Revolution, the film provides a bit of social commentary alongside its uh, sophisticated handling of the horror elements. While this one was extremely well received by critics, I believe fans of the horror genre may be even more excited 
by the Jin films produced by Turkish filmmaker Hasan Karajada. He's uh, directed nine horror films, three of which are available to stream with English subtitles. And I'll link those in the show notes. And we're now hearing a bit of his work in the background. His films, which have been huge box office successes in Turkey and are also uh, generating some international buzz online, have been marketed using the title of his uh, breakout film, Dabe, uh, that is Dabe 1 through 6. Uh, Dabe is an Arabic word from the Quran meaning something like one who walks the earth. That is a, a supernatural figure heralding the end times. While Karajidas' depictions of jinn possession is Fixed uh, predictably within the horror genre, his visual style, which he calls Japanese horror bit, is uh, really quite startling and inventive. And for Western viewers, particularly his films, uh, atmospheric settings in far-flung rural villages and the glimpses he gives of utterly uh, foreign rituals and magic really uh, constitutes a sort of Eastern folk horror, which I've never encountered anywhere else. We'll close out with a bit more audio from the uh, Dabe series. Until next time, when, like Shahrazad, I'll continue our tale of the jinn and some of their western cousins. Till then, pleasant dreams. everyone's been enjoying our show and that you might have the uh, opportunity to share episodes with friends or even better to leave a review wherever you listen as i mentioned at the top of the show these episodes only keep coming out because of the support of our patreon subscribers when you donate you are contributing towards the more than 100 hours that i end up putting into each of these shows Uh, subscriptions begin at one dollar a month and can be discontinued at any time As I mentioned, we'll be offering those who subscribe uh, at the uh, $4 level or higher a short extra episode of readings. Uh, We've also added a bonusical candle featuring the uh, skeletal Saint Notburger, a mascot of a sort, as well as two different mystery kits, each one with unique offerings. And we're still offering the Krampus book and the show soundscapes you hear in the background. I do want to thank our new patrons, uh, N. Johnson, Eric Miller, Craig Kingle, Jason Juta, or Utah, uh, sorry, Jason, if I'm getting, getting it wrong, um, Stephanie Wallace, Lydia Lim, Jim Tripp, and Sneery. And uh, also thanks to Ricardo M. and Grubnash for generously upping their pledges. And thank you very much to the mysterious AT1179 and the very kind Colin Constantine for leaving reviews. If you haven't yet, you might want to visit our website, boneandstickle.com. There you'll find our Patreon, Facebook group, Twitter, and Instagram, along with the show notes with links to uh, materials in the program. This show is written and produced by me, Al Reidenauer. Mrs. Carswell is played by Sarah Chavez, whose projects and writing related to death and culture you can track at sarah-chavez.com. Thanks so much for listening. <laughs>